Teacher. Hanging out with Clement on 702. Let's walk the talk. And this morning we are hanging out with Dr. Navi Pillay. Um, I wasn't exaggerating earlier when I said she is an intellectual legal powerhouse. Uh, she's a world-renowned judge from here in South Africa. Uh, she's held a number of positions across the world. She served as the United Nations Human Rights Chief. She has served as the judge in the International Criminal Court. She's an ad hoc judge at the International Court of Justice, where South Africa recently took Israel for its war in Gaza. She's currently the head of the International Commission of Inquiry into alleged crimes committed during the war between Israel and Hamas. So she is a big deal, um, and I think we need to celebrate her. She's actually the first South African to obtain a doctorate in law from Harvard Law School. In 2009, Forbes actually ranked her as the 64th most powerful woman in the world. And we're going to get to know her better and also get to know about her journey from uh, KwaZulu-Natal all the way to the world. Dr. Pile, welcome to 702. Thank you for making time. Thank you very much, Clement. I'm really happy to see you physically. You know, we love your voice. And thank you for all the programs you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I was so excited when I found out you're coming to studio because, I mean, you're always traveling. You're always out there uh, doing incredible work. And when I found out, actually, she's in South Africa. You landed last night, no? Yes. Last night. Tell me what brings you to South Africa now. I'm now heading this uh, Commission of Inquiry. I'm the chair. Mm. This was established uh, three years ago. And, you know, later, if, if you want more information, I could give it to you. But it's a, it's a very unique uh, commission because it's permanent and we have a very wide mandate. And we are the ones who uh, submitted a report to the General Assembly and made the recommendation mm. that the General Assembly gets an opinion from the International Court of Justice because we said the root cause of the conflict is the occupation and the occupation is unlawful mm. under international law. So we were sure about that, but we're not a court of law. It must go to a court of law. So I'll talk further about that if you like. So mm. that's the next big case that South Africans should watch out for 19th February. Oh, okay. So where, where is that going to be when you say it's going to be the next big case? You mean at the United Nations, that's the investigation you do? you publish a report or is this going to be heard in, in court? What do you mean by that? Um, all right. So you don't mind if we jump into that mind. subject? Yes. Yeah. But before that, let me say that um, I'm here. It's true. If you'd called me last week, yeah, I was in Spain. Mm-hmm. There's a huge women's movement there. Um, it's And I feel I have a responsibility because as a South African, I had the opportunity President Mandela sent me out of the country mm-hmm. to work on international justice, international human rights. Mm-hmm. And I feel I'm accountable to my people, the people of South Africa. So if I have the opportunity, I'll make the effort to mm-hmm. come to you uh, because it's my responsibility to explain mm-hmm. the kind of work we're doing outside there. Mm-hmm. So then this commission is special because... It has a wide mandate to determine the root causes of the conflict between Israel and Palestine yeah. and to offer solutions and to investigate crimes 
name perpetrators, work with courts about this and look at past and ongoing violations. So you see how huge that is? Mm. And you'll, you won't be surprised to learn that it was opposed by Western and European governments in the Human Rights Council when it was set up. And they said their reason is, you know, mm-hmm. this is permanent. The United States said to me, doesn't this is permanent. doesn't have an end date. Yes. But the, the occupation, does that have an end date? You know, Clement, that's the right answer, yes. Which is, fortunately, which is what I said to her. So does the occupation have an end date? And uh, then in October 2022, when the General Assembly adopted a resolution picking up our recommendation, mm. That was opposed by the United States, Israel, of course, and by almost 20 European governments. And I said, why would you oppose your, you getting an opinion from your own court? So that's the second case I meant. It's not our case. It's the United Nations mm. requesting an opinion from the court. And there's been the largest response, about 67 states have joined in either on the one side or the other because they see this as so crucial. Mm-hmm. We see it as crucial because if the court determines the occupation itself is unlawful because it's become perpetual, permanent, then it has to spell out second request from the GA. What are the responsibilities of the states? Yeah. Can they continue to support financially, morally, militarily? So that's why there's so much yeah. response from states. The legal advisor to the United Nations told me, you know, because as the, the UN has to provide all the documents, yeah. it's not uh, between, like, say, South What's Africa. the date again for that case? 19th of February. 19th of February. Hopefully it will be online like uh, this one so. was. Yes. Yeah. So I want us to, and we'll get into some of your work at the United Nations, yeah. at the ICC, and I want to take it back a little bit. You were born in KwaZulu-Natal. Yes. Um, have you always wanted to be a lawyer? Because when I read up on you, even in the past, like you were always like this, this bright, confident kid. Like you were writing letters, you were challenging the status quo. Where did you get that confidence from? You know, it's a good question. Where where do we get this? Because, you know, one of seven children, there's no newspaper or radio, no TV at that time. And we had a disadvantaged education, obviously. Even our parents told us, be mm. careful, don't get involved in anything. So I think I was nine or ten. I wrote one class essay on justice saying there's a similar case and the black man was sentenced to death and the white man was acquitted. I don't know where I got that from. Obviously, some radio stories, so thank you for the service you're doing. (laughs) You know, some child there picks up some idea and runs with it. Mm. Um, I think I I was very sensitive to the injustice. I didn't like the way white treated my parents, for Mm. instance, my grandparents. These are people we respect. Mm. Treated uh, all you know, I have many, many incidents as well as asked to get out or don't use the white soil toilets. These are all humiliating experiences mm-hmm. at Durban. I grew up in Durban and you, we couldn't walk through West Street. We couldn't go to the beaches. They told you this is for white, white yes. people walk here. So don't ever underestimate that children pick up on all these things. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a life experience that we learn from. What does it do to your psyche, Dr. Pillay? Because, I mean, when you have, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a period when you're a child that is so crucial for your development. So whatever you consume, whatever you experience as a child at a specific period of your, of your upbringing, that's going to have long-lasting implications for your life. So for you, having experienced that of you are black, you are Indian, therefore you don't deserve to sit here, you don't deserve to walk here, what does it do to your psyche later, even after we have democracy? Because like, you have to, suppose you have to unlearn so many things. You know, you're right with that question because I've traveled all over Africa. They don't have, in most countries, they don't have this chip on their shoulder, whereas we are very sensitive. We are carrying that inferiority complex mm. because it was drilled in us. Mm. And it's only as adults that we learn to fight it. A very good expression is nobody can make you feel inferior unless you let them. Mm. So you learn to, so I, I saw, for instance, in Zimbabwe, yeah, they, they much uh, more assertive and confident about themselves. Mm -hmm. We, we still stand outside the door and say, can I come in? You know, I've seen, I've seen uh, young Americans, they just walk in. They don't just wait there, tap, cap in hand, waiting to be let in. These are our apartheid experiences. You either react positively or you get crushed by the mm. system. Do um, you think sometimes we undermine that as as the born freeze, because I, I love having conversations with, with people like yourselves, you know, that have lived through that time that I didn't live through, thank goodness, um, because I learned to appreciate this democracy even more because it's too, it's practical now. I'm sitting with someone who tells me this is what they told me, not because I'm not smart, not because I'm tall, but because of the color of my skin. I can't study here. I can't do this profession. I can't walk here. I can't sit here. And that just makes me appreciate the work that you guys have done as, as, as activists, mm -hmm. as people who are fighting for, for, for this freedom. And, and I appreciate it so much. Do you sometimes feel, do you think we understand it as young people, the kind of sacrifices you've made, but also the kind of experiences you've had during that ruthless system? I will give our youth in South Africa, the born freeze, the benefit of the doubt. I would not want to stereotype all of them as spoiled kids going after designer labels and so on. No, no, no. That's a, a wrong perspective image that's being portrayed on them. I think they're very, very aware. Even though we didn't like all the violence that accompanied the student protests over education, they were right. They were carrying posters saying, do the poor not have the right to education? You see, they were right. Why did they have to go and beg and scream for all that? Um, I love that they're taking up the rights language, not as charity given to them, but as rights. We all abhor violence. Because that violence that took place in the University of KwaZulu-Natal really has lasting injury to that university. I serve as a trustee. Mm -hmm. I know how the donors have pulled out donations. So eventually who studies or who suffers? It's students. You can't go burning libraries as they did there. They burnt the law library, mm -hmm. for instance. So we can't be reckless. Each generation has to look out for the next generation. I wouldn't be here if my parents hadn't 
really struggled to put me through to school mm. and my, and those dedicated teachers who did so much for us we owe it to them so we have to mm. in turn share our knowledge and wisdom with the younger people what did it mean for you and your family when you obtained your doctorate in law from Harvard Law School and you are now you know, the first South African to do so, or when you started your own law firm in Kozulu Natal, because were you the first woman to start a law firm in KZN? I mean, that's a huge, those are huge milestones, given the history also that you were raised in. What did it mean for you and the family, and, and, and I suppose, in hindsight, for society at large? Well, Clement, it's not so much the Harvard doctorate. Mm. It's the first degree I got, the BA, mm. because I came from the poor community of Clarewood, it's, you know, it still doesn't have sewage system. That's how bad that was. Mm. And, of course, we were all segregated. I was in the Indian school. The teachers and the school principal spoke to members of the community and said, we have a student here who has the potential and should go to university. Mm. So that poor community collected their rands and cents and sent me to university. Where the, so therefore I was one of the first to get a BA. Mm. That was celebrated by the community. I remember that a couple of relatives wanted pictures of me in the grad gown. It was such a great thing for everybody, not only the immediate family. Yes. <laughs> and, and of course, as soon as I started practicing law, I made sure I fill up that and so that many more students can get those bursaries and one day I had the chance to address the whole community on a sports ground and s described all the work I did as an international judge and as a high commissioner for human rights. Mm. Uh, Harvard was an opportunity because it's a Harvard students who insisted that Harvard sets up a, a bursary, a fellowship for black South Africans mm. because they had never had a black uh, graduate student, either in the business school or economics or law. So I was lucky to get that. But by then, I was already practicing as a lawyer. And I do believe that's why I coped. Otherwise, we do have a drawback in that we don't have the quality education that they have. They have already scored 99.9% um, grade to get into Harvard. So, so therefore, for me to get in there and cope, well, firstly, I was lucky. Secondly, hard work. But thirdly, I was already yeah. a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So we're going to play one of your favorite songs now. And then we'll go to Eyewitness News. When we come back, I'll take some of your calls, uh, your WhatsApps as well. If you've got a question for Dr. Navi Pillay, maybe you want to say hi, you can call us on 011-883-0702. Uh, the WhatsApps on 072-702-1702. You like Beyonce, right? I love her, yes. You love Beyonce? Yeah. Okay. But I love, I love our South African singers more. I know, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll play some of that as well. Thank you. And I'll tell you why um, we're doing this song by Beyonce. With Clement on 702. Let's walk the talk. Dr. Navi Pillay, a world-renowned judge, is hanging out with us here on um, this Thursday morning. 
Um, we played a song by Beyonce. I know she's your favorite artist. What is it about her that I know you love? Yvonne Chaka Chaka as well. We'll play some of uh, the other music. What is it about Beyonce? I love singers who have a social conscience. She sees a bigger role for herself than just singing and making money. Yeah. So, so she's very special. Look at the, her message uh, about, you know, you, you, you come, you occupy space on earth. What have you done? Mm. Have you made a difference? Mm. So I think she's inspiring and her music and 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 move moves are just fantastic as well. Yeah. So as old as I am, I appreciate. You try the moves. <laughs> <laughs> Bit hard when you're over eighteen. <laughs> Speaking of making a difference, Doctor Pillay, I, I want to talk about the United Nations a little bit. Yes. What difference do you think the United Nations has made? And and, and I want to narrow this question because. In the bigger scheme of things, the United Nations has made a huge difference. Let me localize it within perhaps the conflict we're seeing in the United Nations. So um, I remember having some experts on the show and we were talking about World War One and World War Two, and what came after that. And, and I remember we were talking about how we now have, you know, now the legacy of especially World War Two included the creation of the United Nations as a peacekeeping force and, and geopolitical you know, rivalries that resulted in the Cold War. But the United Nations was there because we realize what happens and we want people to find ways to resolve their issues. But when you look at what's been happening in the Middle East, the United Nations has tried to intervene. The United Nations Security Council has tried to come up with resolutions, but that hasn't helped in either resulting in a solution or ending this conflict or this war that's been going on for so long? Would you say it's failed? I, I say we, this is the institution we have and we have to make it work. Why? Because we must have a multilateral institution where all states get together, talk and find issues. And then we, the civil society, the people. We're not part of this. So who is the United Nations? They are member states. They have the power. They make decisions. However, there are two other parts to this. We, the people on the outside who constantly push our own governments and these member states of the United Nations to do more for the protection of human rights of everyone, to, to achieve peace and conflict to step in before lives are lost. Who does that kind of work are those who work within the UN. And I was part of that as High Commissioner for Human Rights. In fact, I was the only High Commissioner whose term was extended. It's usually a four-year term. I served six years. So I feel for the frustration now of people like Michael Griffiths of UNRWA and, um, and, and all the other agencies who work so hard to deliver humanitarian aid, who do the work of delivering on the UN principles and the charter. We believe in that. So we often cry when we don't get the cooperation of, of governments, of member states. So my first point is each government is responsible and accountable to their people within their states, just mm -hmm. like our government is. The other point is, it is true that because they are 
it's a political organization. They, it is very fractured and they adopt different positions. Sometimes they vote against the UN Charter itself. Mm. Sometimes they vote against our, our constitution. So like resolutions are vetoed so easily. That's right. I'll come to the veto just mm. now. But, but every country, don't just blame any one country. Every country does follow their own. Mm national and political interest sometimes it's a group interest you find western states are the were the first to set up these groups group of eight group of 15 they exclude everybody else and what happens to a multilateral system as you create more and more of these groups mm. it was in response to exclusion that the african countries set up their own groups yeah, of course the african union was there Long before all this, mm. but recently we have BRICS. Yeah, that's in reaction to to the fact that our that exploitation mm. of of developing countries is continuing because the developed countries were smart enough to gang up into groups. So that's an explanation why South Africa sometimes votes in a way that makes mm. us really unhappy here. Mm. The other is you mentioned the vote, Clement. That's a real problem. And you're quite right. The United Nations was set up after World War II to make sure that huge crimes against humanity and genocide do not happen again. And the main example people give, because the dialogue always emanates from the West, the main example they give is the Holocaust of Jews, mm. black people and, and persons with disabilities during the, the Nazi war. However, let's not miss out that there was huge crime, which I would call genocide today, when the United States bombed the cities of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan mm -hmm. and then entered a peace agreement where they ensured that Japan remains silent about it, never complains about this. So you won't find that example coming up. You'll only find this example of the Jews have suffered and so on. So that completes a picture of why they, they then set up and establish all these various conventions. But the P5, these are the five powers, the United States, Russia, uh, France, United Kingdom. And later, they, when China became an economic power, it became five. Before that, it was four. They each have the veto, and they can veto anything. Three of them are not members of the International Criminal Court, so they don't accept responsibility for serious crimes committed in their own countries or in the, in the territories of their friends. They are really divided in the positions they adopt on when they use the veto, but let me tell you one thing. There's one thing they, those five are united about. That is they are not prepared to give up their veto power. So does that then mean we can change the architecture of that institution when it comes to the powers that these superpowers have because they're not going to agree on giving up that power? That's right. We're stuck with that. I'm part of the reform process. South Africa is one of the leaders of a reform process. And uh, as High Commissioner, I spoke up for, for that particularly that the veto cannot be used when you you have a mandate for peace and security and there are human rights violations going mm. on. How can you use a veto? Mm. Um, so the other example I'm, I constantly hear in the West 
is, oh, it's Russia and China using the veto. Yeah, but the United States used the veto, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, to stop Security Council imposing sanctions against the apartheid government. And I had a chance as High Commissioner years later when I met, when I addressed the Security Council mm -hmm. to remind them that they had actually used the voto, veto in support of racism. Mm -hmm. um, so, so where I'm leading to is civil society. That's, that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to South Africans through your wonderful program to make you aware that we all have a voice. We, used to, we have to use pressure from ordinary people, from civil society, to challenge these governments that are not delivering on their mandate of protecting civilians. Mm -hmm. When are we going to have a female United Nations Secretary General? You know, it's wonderful that you asked me that. 75 years and no woman Secretary General. That is not an accident. That's deliberate. After very many years, they did pass uh, resolutions that there has to be geographical selection as well. That gave the developing countries a chance mm. to be Secretary General. I just come from this meeting in Madrid where we are global women leaders and 70 former under Secretary Generals, all women from the UN have joined in because we have the power, the experience. We want to use our voices. And one of the five things we want to do is to come up with a alternation, a gender alternation every term. So one t so just as we have geography, mm -hmm. we, we must have gender. Mm -hmm. It's a new idea and we're pushing for it. There's a lot of support for that. That's great. That's and there's great no shortage of candidates. There are mm -hmm. very good women out there. Yeah. I, I want to get your thoughts on, on UNRWA. I mean, it's... Israel has come out and, and claimed that that 12 UNRWA staffers who have participated in the October 7 attacks, and for those that are not aware of UNRWA, it's the United Nations uh, Relief and, and Works Agency for um, the, the Palestinian refugees. So as a result, we have seen certain countries now withdrawing their funding. Um, and UNRWA is quite a critical um, organization in Gaza, in fact, I heard the Secretary General of the United Nations say that's the backbone um, of Gaza. What do you make, as, as someone who's also part of the United Nations, of what's happening at UNRWA now and what's the impact of all these monies being withdrawn? Firstly, let's make clear the, uh, the obligation under international law to look after the people of Palestine, their needs for water, to supply them with water and power and food and schools. That obligation is on Israel as the occupying power. They not doing anything about it. To save Palestinian lives, the UN steps in and, and uh, you know, picks up donations, begs for donations. It's true. The United States is one of the key provider, a major donor towards this program. And so, number one, we should understand that really the onus should be on Israel. Why are we letting Israel escape and taking on this responsibility for so many years? However, we do it because the UN and certain states are dedicated to saving Palestinian lives. To cut off that supply by some states 
I mean, it is just too shocking. It is so antithetical to human rights. It, and why has it come so, I mean, so soon after the order that South Africa secured in the International Court of Justice, where the court ordered Israel to ensure that humanitarian aid flows? You see, now they can say, oh, no, we've opened the borders. These uh, Umrah trucks are not coming in. Well, they cut off. They cut off the lifeline, the funds to Umrah. And that's why the Secretary General is so, so alarmed mm. that this cutting off of funds is unconscionable because more and more people are going to die. They're at the point of starvation. Well, has there been an investigation um into the claims, I understand that Israel has provided its own evidence to UNRWA about its members who were involved, and UNRWA has since suspended um, these these members. Are they doing an investigation to find out if indeed these 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 workers at this agency were involved in the attacks on October seventh? And absolutely, both in our national law, our courts will also say, "All right, there's this allegation. Did you investigate it?" Mm. UNRWA has 13,000 national staff. These are national staff, not international staff from the UN. These are the people who are handing out food and so on. They receive these allegations. And by the way, when these allegations come from Israel, they don't bring you the information and tell you, listen, this is what we found out. No, they scream about it in the media. It, it, it happened about sexual violence and similarly. So when UNRWA found out about the allegations, they started looking into it. They suspended, uh, I don't know what the number now, but mm. it's about 12 out of uh, 13,000. Yes. Yeah. So firstly, that's what you expect to happen. When there's a complaint, you begin to investigate. Yeah. Mm. suspend them they're not immediately guilty you have to look into the facts so since they've done the correct thing why is there a reason to withdraw the the because the united funding? states and france and all the other countries that are yes. suspending their funding they seem to have taken israel's word even before even other internal investigations are done let me ask this um and i'm, I'm not trying to be a pessimist so as someone who heads an investigation or a commission that's looking into possible crimes in the war between Israel and Palestine, even if you come up with the report, Dr. Pillay, what is it going to do? The other day, um, the United Secretary General tweeted um, in a quote here. He said, the protection of civilians is paramount. The laws of war establish clear rules to protect human life and respect humanitarian concerns. Those laws cannot be contorted for the sake of expedience. And I responded to that tweet and I said, but this has been enabled and allowed for the longest time, for the longest time. So what's going to stop it? And it can be mounting pressure because there's always been pressure from civil society. I mean, I've never in my life seen so many people go to the streets in London, in the U.S., in France, where even the, pre the leaders in France are like, they've never seen protests like that before. But for some reason, that's not enough to change the position of Israel. So even if your commission comes and says, Israel has done this wrong, what is it going to do? Because they have violated resolutions of the Security Council countless of times. Mm -hmm. So what are they going to do to a commission that says you are wrong in this? Firstly, you're quite right to hold these frustrations. 
I was High Commissioner for Human Rights when I supervised many of these commissions, the special rapporteurs, these are independent experts, reports after reports in the Human Rights Council. It's discussed and Israel is condemned and they have ignored it. Um, However, I look at the street protests. We have to join that struggle. We have to fight. We can't just give up on these. As Beyonce said, you have to do your best in whatever power you have, if the only power you have is to write to your government or, or speak on the radio, this is wrong, we want our government to do something about it. And then if you have the power as we have, and we now have the power I have as chair of this commission, and many people have asked me, so what's the point? Are you yeah. going to produce a report? You're going to look Did at I, it. you know... You know, did I ever think we'll succeed to this this extent that for mm-hmm. for 75 years, for the very first time, they're going to have a court, the highest court rule on the lawfulness of the occupation? It has never been done before. So that's what we do. We've learned these mm-hmm. from our struggles in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You don't give up. You look for the cracks. Mm. You push and push. Mm. You don't achieve success in one day. You push but, again. But I feel wonderful that I came out of retirement, used my skills together with wonderful mm. teams from the yeah. uh, Human Rights Office. And as Beyonce said, I was mm. here and you were here and you've done your part as well. So That's even right. if they come out and they reject the findings of the commission or the court says you illegally occupied and they rejected like they've rejected the International Court of Justice's judgment. But you can say I've done my part. I'm going to ask you to put on your headphones, please, Dr. Play. I want to take a call from Ronald, who's calling us from Pretoria. Ronald, good morning. Um, yes, hello. Good morning. I um, hope you can hear me. Yes, go ahead. Um, I, I wonder how, I wonder what is it going to take to force Israel because I really don't see them um, adhering to any of the decisions that was made this last weekend, um, it's going to uh, probably be something short of a, a knock on the head to, you know, to make them comply. Mm. So wouldn't uh, do peacekeeping forces ever work? Uh, um, would it, would something would it take something like that to make Israel? Mm take notice because they seem to be they seem to be thumbing them you know uh, putting putting up their noses that you know the, the the decisions that have already been made and we're still a long way from where we want to be with it yeah ronald thank you um a peacekeeping mission by the mm. united nations would that work Ronald, you're quite right, firstly, to question, you know, what's the solutions. We need your voice and civil society voices constantly to say something has to be done. Mm. So, and you're quite right. Who is entrusted with the power to ensure this peace and security in the world? The Security Council of the United Nations. What have they done in the past? They've sent peacekeeping missions, for instance, into the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. We, and sometimes they've sent uh, military forces, well, yes. such as inside Rwanda to mm. stop the genocide. Why haven't they done anything like that in Israel? 23,000 killed already, 1.9 million displaced. So that's a stumbling block. 
that the United States is using its veto to stop effective action, effective intervention by the Security Council. Mm. I've got a question from, from another listener who says, Clement, please can you ask Dr. Pillay uh, what she makes of the decision made by Julia, um, Judge Julia Subutinde, the Ugandan judge at the International Court of Justice. She's the only judge that dissented um, from the majority judgment. Um, as an ad hoc judge in that court yourself, Dr. Pillay, what did you make of that? I'm as surprised as you. <laughs> of course, it's not proper for a, a, a judge to I comment. Know. Yeah. Mm. Now, I know uh, Judge Julia Sabitende very well. She's from Uganda, as you know. And I am still an ad hoc judge in the matter of uh, the Gambia uh, against Myanmar on the Genocide Convention. And I know, and you know to its public knowledge, that Judge Sabitende supported that provisional order. Mm. So I fully expected that she will adhere to her previous order. I, I myself was very intrigued to say, let's see what reasons she gives for why she's not following the previous jurisprudence mm. of the court that she had supported. But I see from her reasons, she's picked up the arguments of the uh, Israeli legal team. Uh, so uh, let let me just say I do not agree with her dis- dissent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that will be sufficient. I know I was just pushing there. No, as a judge in the <laughs> same court, that puts you um, in the corner. Dr. Navi Pillay, thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you for your service to this country. Um, thank you for your heart. I mean, I can't believe you're over eighty. <laughs> Yeah. Huh? I mean, you look yeah. amazing. Do you run? How do you do it? Thank you. I can't even say I'm 82 because I'm beyond that a little now. <laughs> well, you're amazing. And thank you for coming out of retirement to do work. Um, that is so critical and so important to, to this world. I appreciate you making time for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for the wonderful program. And I do hope you will play Yvonne Chaka Chaka's song. Yes. Because Yvonne makes a difference in domestic violence. We've worked closely there. I'm going to play violence. it yes. after the news at All 11 right. o'clock. Thank you. Thank for you, Dr. Pillay. Bye bye.